Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with indications that Biden's Build Back Better human infrastructure bill will be shelved until the new year, and the possibility that the voting rights bills will now be prioritised in the few days left before the Christmas break. Although, while Senators Manchin and Cinema say they support voting rights reform, they are resisting filibuster reform, which is the only way to get the bills passed. Joining us is Paul Waldman, a columnist at the Washington Post Plum Line and a senior writer at the American Prospect. He's the author of Being Right is Not Enough, What Progressives Must Learn from Conservative Success, and he has articles at the Washington Post, How Joe Manchin and the Republicans Are Wrecking Our Most Important Debates, and another, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, Mull, Whether Democracy is Worth Saving. We'll discuss whether there was a trade-off agreed to in these last days of jawboning between Biden and Manchin, and the likelihood that if and when Bill Back Better is passed next year, it will be even more whittled down. Then we'll look further into the latest blow to the Biden presidency coming from his own party and speak with Daniel Rogers, a professor emeritus of history at Princeton University and the author of Atlantic Crossings, Social Politics in a Progressive Age, Age of Fracture, and most recently, As a City on a Hill, the story of America's most famous lay sermon. He joins us to discuss the fate of reform presidents in recent presidential history and the exaggerated perception of Biden's weakness, which is not helped by the failure of a veteran of the Senate appearing to not be able to get his programs through the Senate. Then finally, we'll assess whether America's two nuclear-armed adversaries will be able to form an enduring alliance against the United States, since Russia and China have very different approaches to dealing with India, for example. Joining us is Gilbert Rosman, the Emeritus Musgrave Professor of Sociology at Princeton University and the Editor-in-Chief of the ASAN Forum, a bi-monthly online journal of international relations in the Indo-Pacific region. He specializes in societies of China, Japan, Korea and Russia and he is the author of International Relations and Asia's Northern Tier, Sino-Russia Relations and North Korea and Mongolia. And before we go to our first guest... In order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station. So background briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Paul Waldman, who's a columnist at the Washington Post's Plum Line and a senior writer at the American Prospect. He's the author of Being Right is Not Enough, What Progressives Must Learn from Conservative Success, and he has an article at the Washington Post, How Joe Manchin and Republicans Are Wrecking Our Most Important Debates, and another at the Post today, 
Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin mull whether democracy is worth saving. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Waldman. Thank you. Well, it looks as if the Build Back Better is dead, at least for this year, and it's possible that they could revive it in January. Senator Lindsey Graham says it's completely dead, but I guess he's not exactly a neutral observer. What's your sense then of the apparently the decision on the part of the House Democrats and Schumer to sort of table Build Back Better and perhaps focus on voting rights? Yeah, it's not as though they're just, you know, tossing it in the trash. Um, there's a limited amount of time before the end of the year and the Congress goes home for Christmas. Um, they're basically acknowledging that they're not going to get it done in the next couple of weeks. Um, the problem is still, uh, it looks like now Senator Manchin more than Senator Cinema, uh, and he has kind of an ever-changing list of demands. Um, lately, he's been uh, objecting to some of the ways that there are uh, features of the bill that phase in and phase out. It's a kind of rather common budget gimmickry in Washington. Um, you say, well, we're going to hold down the cost of the bill by saying we'll create this program, but then it will disappear in five years, or we'll create it, but it won't start until 2024. There's a bunch of that in the bill. Um, one of the things that I pointed out in that article is that that Joe Manchin is the biggest reason why that happens. You know, this debate has been so distorted by the numbers. I mean, if you think about everything that we've been talking about over Build Back Better for for months now, so much of it has been the total cost over 10 years of the bill. Is it going to be 3.5 trillion? Is it going to be 2.1 trillion? Is it going to be 1.75 trillion? And that keeps you from talking about the things that it actually does. But Manchin is the one who keeps saying it's too expensive, we have to bring the number down. And most of the time, that's completely divorced from any kind of substantive objection. Now, he has some substantive objections um, that now President Biden and he apparently are talking frequently on the phone to try to work out. Um, but it looks like it's going to take a little more time. And uh, people are certainly starting to get nervous. Um, there are, if you talk to members of the House, they're saying, you know, the longer this drags on, the, the higher the chances are that it won't survive. Um, I think that, uh, you know, if I had to put a put money down, I would say it's still more likely than not to to end up getting approved. Um, but it causes a lot of tension. And as you now, as you said, they're now looking to see if they can maybe pass one of their two or maybe both of their uh, voting rights bills. Uh, more quickly. And there's a, a certain greater amount of agreement on the substance of those. Um, one of them is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which basically restores some of the original Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court gutted. Um, and the other is a kind of a more sweeping comprehensive bill that has to do with gerrymandering and uh, voting procedures and a whole bunch of other things. Um, and the Democrats themselves seem to basically agree on that. But the trouble is, they're going to need to convince Manchin and Cinema to to allow for some kind of workaround of the filibuster in order to pass them, and it's not yet clear if that's going to be possible. So there may be no major legislation before the end of the year. There may be a bunch of things that happen at the beginning of the year after they come back, uh, or we may get some voting legislation. Um, it's all really up in the air right now, but it has Democrats feeling very, very nervous and unsettled. 
I imagine the one Democrat who's feeling particularly down is Joe Biden. His presidency is on the line. And the American people, I think, want presidents and politicians to get things done. And he's already being portrayed in many ways as a failed president. And, he, and there's a lot of focus on his poll numbers going down and down. Uh, this is the last thing he needs. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, th this is what he was one of the things that he was supposed to be good at was wrangling votes in Congress, where he spent three decades. So uh, I think you, you'd probably agree with me. It sounds like that that so much of that narrative about him being a failed president is just it's, it's sort of ridiculous and overblown. He hasn't even been in office for a year yet. Um, but, you know, this is as you say, this is this is the this is what is supposed to be. The, the thing that he does well and the thing that people expect is that, you know, you have to deliver. Now, I'm, I happen to think that it's, that it's all but inevitable that Democrats are going to lose the House and perhaps the Senate, but certainly the House in the 2022 midterm elections. That's just what happens. Um, but if you believe that that's true, then they should do as much legislating and get as much done as they can so as not to have wasted this opportunity. And if you believe it's not inevitable – then you have to say that the one of the only things that could possibly save them is to show the public that they can deliver, that there's a reason to have Democrats in office. And all the things that they promised are things that can actually bring benefits to people's lives. Um, and this but this is, you know, this is the quandary of uh, politics in America today, especially when it comes to the way that the filibuster um, grinds everything in the Senate to a halt, is that you have this. A democracy that is unable to give people what it promises. And so a party gets elected. They say, we're going to do all these things. And the voting and the electorate says, that sounds good. We'll vote for you. And then they get into office, but they can't do any of the things because the filibuster stops any of it from happening. And then they have to go back two years later and say, well, we didn't do all the things we promised to do, but you got to reelect us anyway, because maybe the other side is worse, or maybe we'll try again. But whatever it is, it's not the kind of thing that uh, makes for a responsive democracy. And again, I'm speaking with Paul Waldman, who's a columnist at the Washington Post Plumb Line and a senior writer at the American Prospect. He's the author of Being Right is Not Enough, What Progressives Must Learn from Conservative Success. And he has an article at the Washington Post, How Joe Manchin and Republicans Are Wrecking Our Most Important Debates. And another out today in the Post, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, Mull Whether Democracy is Worth Saving. So... You point out the sort of fatuous nature of some of the arguments about getting rid of the filibuster, particularly from cinema, saying that if they, you know, if you get rid of it, then the other side's going to pass a bunch of terrible, terrible legislation, which calls into question what's the point of majority rule, or what's the point of governing at all. <laughs> but the thing that I find particularly disingenuous about both Mansion and Cinema's arguments, particularly when it refers to inflation and the deficit is they're the ones that are preventing the revenues from being raised to pay for these programs. And as you point out, you don't even discuss the programs, you only discuss the price tag. And then recently, or a few months ago, Cinema had an article, in the, had an op-ed in the Washington Post about defending the filibuster, and it made absolutely no sense, talking about it's a part of American democratic tradition. Well, it's not a part of tradition, not the way it is today, but most of the countries. 240 plus years, the filibuster was rarely used. It was There was an uptick during the civil rights movement from the Dixiecrats trying to stop civil rights. But 
in the last decade or so, it's routine. It's used all the time. The numbers of times it's been used have gone through the ceiling. So it's a relatively new phenomenon the way it is today, hardly a tradition. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And all of the arguments that Cinema uh, and Mansion raise and its defenders raise, they just don't hold any water at all. I mean, as, as you said, that the what's the point of having a democracy if you elect parties and then they can't actually accomplish anything? And to say that, well, the other side might do some bad stuff, uh, then therefore it's preferable to basically have, uh, you know, Congress the, in a an indefinite coma that because you're afraid that the other side might might get the chance to do something. You know, I'm I'm a liberal, but I'm happy to have Republicans get elected and then do the things that they promise if Democrats can do the same. That's how the system is supposed to work. Um, but the idea that that they seem to cling to that the that the filibuster is going to produce bipartisan legislation that's going to be enduring. Um, that's just not true anymore. I don't think it was ever true, but it's certainly not true now because there's just this, especially given the distance between the parties, there is this tiny little band of things that you can get 10 Republicans to agree on. And if that's really, you know, that's the number now with 50 Democrats in the Senate. And if you think about what would 10 Republicans agree to do? Well, they agreed to do uh, infrastructure. Okay, that's one little tiny thing, <laughs> but there's almost nothing else that the parties that even you can get 10 Republicans to agree on. And so, you know, you have a situation now with uh, with voting legislation. They are certainly never going to agree to that in any form because their entire party has decided that the only way for it to ensure its success in the future is to have a system built on minority rule where they can gerrymander to their heart's content, where they can pass voter suppression laws, where they can make it difficult for Democrats to vote, uh, where they can take over uh, local election apparatuses so, so that, you know, if in 2024 it looks like Joe Biden beats Donald Trump, that they can just change those results and, and declare Republicans the winner. That is what their entire party is now invested in. So they're never going to agree to any kind of voting reform that actually makes it easier to people, for people to vote, that guarantees the security of elections. You will not get, in under any circumstances, 10 Republicans to agree to that. And the same is true of all kinds of other legislation. And so when you say, you know, we're only going to do the things that 10 Republicans will agree to, well, you've said that we're going to pass almost nothing. And it's uh, they have this kind of naive faith in the good the goodwill of their colleagues that they can convince them that if they sit down and you know hash things out that there will be a meaningful legislation that improves the lives of Americans that comes out of it and it's just not true anymore it's like even though they walk the halls of congress every day they're living in this kind of uh, fantasy from from you know hollywood movies that are decades old and it's maddening for Democrats especially, since you know we, we live in this situation where there are all these features of the system that give Republicans outsized influence, whether it's the makeup of the Senate or the fact that they gerrymander so effectively for the House and for state legislatures, and push and there there's just this one little key that you could turn to equalize that just a little bit and allow Democrats who have won an election to do the things that they promised. And now it's all come down really to two senators who won't let them turn that key. But so far, the debate has been amongst Democrats. And I frankly have a great deal of sympathy for President Joe Biden, uh, particularly with Kirsten Sinema, because I don't know that we know exactly what her 
priorities and her ideology is because, she, first of all, she won't talk to the press, which I think is a, is a real red flag. Manchin at least has, you know, talks to the press in the corridor and seems to be at least approachable. But I'm wondering whether in these last agonizing days of, of Manchin and Biden jawboning, do you think that it was a finally agreed to that, okay, we'll delay Build Back Better, but let's get voting rights passed? Is there any inkling of that, Paul? Um, it, not as far as we know. And uh, Manchin seems to be on board with the uh, voting rights legislation in its current form. So he's not holding that up on the merits. Um, he may hold it up just because he decides that he can't live with whatever sort of filibuster workaround they come up with. But he doesn't seem to object on the merits, and neither does cinema. I mean, you're right that she is a mystery. You know, with him, you can say, well, he comes from one of the most conservative states in the country, and his whole political identity is built on being the guy who keeps Democrats from doing the liberal things that they want to do. Um, and that's, I think, by personal inclination and politically. But she is more mysterious, and it's often hard to figure out exactly what her agenda is or what, um, how she sees herself, if she's going to run for re-election. All of those things are, very, are, are real unknowns because she doesn't talk about it a lot, whereas his, uh, his motivations are a little more legible. Um, so I don't know that there's been some kind of a deal when it comes to the order in which they're going to do these things. And that's unfortunately, you know, so much of that happens privately. So we don't know the substance of Manchin and Biden's conversations over the last few days, except for, you know, a few little things that have, have leaked out some description that a White House or a congressional aide will, will tell a reporter. Um, I don't know. We don't also, we also don't know what the substance of the conversations that, uh, Manchin has had with the majority leader, Chuck Schumer, and he's the one who you know controls the agenda. Um, so uh, there's a lot that's mysterious. And I think that, you know, Manchin to a certain degree is he seems to change his mind about what's bugging him the most. Now, there have been plenty of occasions in the past where he's raised a bunch of objections to some bill that Democrats wanted and, um, you know, made himself kind of a pain in the neck. But then in the end, he came around and voted for it. And that may still be the most likely outcome for the Build Back Better bill, um, but you know, it's never nothing is ever certain until the vote gets called. So uh, I think we're all going to be just sort of waiting until this thing happens. Now we think it might happen in January, but there have even been some intimations from from Capitol Hill that it might get pushed into February or even March. And we just don't know. You know, it's possible that two weeks from now he could say the president and I have resolved all our differences and we're ready to go. Um, but he might just drag it out. Uh, I do know uh, my colleague Greg Sargent and I today were talking to some some people on the Hill, members of the House Democrats. are they, they, The thing that they're saying is the longer this goes, the less likely it is to pass. And so they don't want it to just sort of, you know, be a death by a thousand cuts. Uh, and that's what they're worried about. So, um, you know, I think that we're going to it's going to wait until we get back from everybody's Christmas break. And then we're going to find out what the fate of this thing really is. So just in the last minute, then, Paul, obviously, the child tax credit is going to suffer. The checks supposed to come out in January on the 15th. I don't know that they've got time to do that if they come back early in January. And I think if they do get a bill back better, you know, no matter how long it takes, the longer it takes, the more it'll be whittled down. Is that a f fair assumption? 
Yeah, it's a it's definitely a concern. Uh, you know, things might have to go, um, but it's also possible that at the last moment they'll increase it. You know, um, they also I think will, would probably if if it goes past the fifteenth and that next round of checks doesn't go out, they would probably have that credit be given to people retroactively. Um, that they've done that in the past when deadlines have fallen. You know, they've when deadlines have passed. So it's possible that that will work out in the end in terms of the amount of money people get. But nothing is certain until until that last vote gets counted. Well, Paul Warman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I mean, speaking with Paul Waldman, who's a columnist at the Washington Post Plumline and a senior writer at the American Prospect. He's the author of Being Right is Not Enough, What Progressives Must Learn from Conservative Success. And he has an article at the Washington Post, How Joe Manchin and Republicans Are Wrecking Our Most Important Debates. And another in today's Washington Post, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin mull whether democracy is worth saving. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking further into this latest blow to the Biden presidency coming from his own party. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Daniel Rogers, Professor Emeritus of History at Princeton University and the author of The Work Ethic in Industrial America, 1850-1920, Atlantic Crossings, Social Politics in a Progressive Age, Age of Fracture, and most recently, As a City on a Hill, The Story of America's Most Famous Lay Sermon. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Rogers. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And today, it seems like it's pretty much the death nail, or at least the Build Back Better signature plan of President Biden's is being shelved. Senate Democrats say that they'll get back to it in January, but the deadline to get the January this 15th checks out on for the child tax credit is pretty much <laughs> literally the 1st of January and no later. So I'm not sure that they're going to be able to do that but Senator Lindsey Graham is saying that it's dead, Build Back Better. It's never going to happen. So does that mean that the House progressives were right in using it as leverage against the passage of the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which they, and they eventually relented and lost their leverage, and here we are today? Is that what happened? Well, that's, I mean, that's certainly a part of, of what happened, but it's not the whole story of, of what happened, I think. They had leverage. They tried to use it, the House uh, progressives, and it turned out that they were not able to move Joe Manchin and um, the other moderates, of which there were not more than a few in the uh, Senate Democratic caucus. Uh, and now it turns out that Biden's jawboning has not uh, moved them nearly as far as, as uh, he hoped it would either. But does that mean that, that the bill is dead? Of course, Lindsey Graham's going to say that. Of course, he would like to uh, to set uh, Biden up as a failure from the from the very outset. But I don't I don't know what uh, I don't think anybody knows precisely what the terms of that would bring the uh, conservative wing of the party 
together with the House progressives, but it's not as clear that there's no possibility uh, and that the bill will be much less ambitious than Biden hoped and that they had hoped, but I don't think it's dead. So in other words, it's been whittled down. Remember, it started out at $6 trillion. Uh, at least that's what Bernie Sanders was hoping for, and then it went down to 3.5, and then 2, and now 1.75. So when they come back, I mean, is it likely it will be down to one and a half or even one trillion? That I'm not. A, I'm not a good enough uh, policy expert to be able to make a guess, Ian. But um, it will be trimmed back, and partly it's going to be trimmed back because inflation fears are are real among many economists, and they're real in the conservative wing of the Democratic Party. And so the the raw number uh, matters now in a way that it didn't when the bill was first introduced. And it's going to be pared back because of the sausage making that goes into legislative um, operations. But above all, uh, it, we've got a circumstance where the the Senate majority is so slim on the Democratic Party's part that their ability to get anything through depends on a, on two or three votes. And in those circumstances, it's clear that it's going to be smaller, and it's not clear of exactly which set of compromises are going to be the ones that prevail. But the objections that you hear from Manchin and from Senator Sinema, who are basically holding things up in the Senate, are a little disingenuous, to put it mildly. First of all, neither of them want to raise taxes in any realistic way or overturn the Trump tax cuts, which were heavily weighted to the super wealthy. And when they make arguments like Cinnamon does in an op-ed she wrote for the Washington Post a few months back, talking about how sacred the, the filibuster is because of Senate tradition, well, that just history indicates otherwise. I mean, the filibuster was barely used throughout the entire history of American democracy. There was an uptick during the, the civil rights movement from the Dixiecrats. But then lately, in the last couple of decades at least, it's just gone through the roof the number of times it's been used. So their arguments are pretty disingenuous. Would you agree? Uh, they're, uh, they're certainly an obstruction to uh, what uh, progressive and centrist Democrats want. Um, they certainly um, seem to have no remorse about torpedoing uh, Biden's first agendas. They certainly have no remorse about, about painting the Democratic Party as, as divided among itself and unable to put things together. Um, if they had stronger party loyalty, they would have swallowed whatever objections they have and just said that for the long-term good of the party. We, are, we need to pass something big, important, uh, socially progressive, etc. Um, so does that but, mean, though, Daniel, that they will go down on the same sinking ship? I don't understand why they are torpedoing the Biden agenda and hurting the Democrats to the extent that they will look like they can't get anything done, because I think voters vote for politicians and parties to get things done. I don't know the answer to that. Manchin clearly imagines himself as a man above party. He keeps floating the idea that he's not really a Democrat, but an independent, maybe a, a man free of party. Some of them may, may feel the, the same way. This is not a new thing in American politics, where people imagine themselves standing above party loyalty. They're also under a lot of pressure from their home states. Uh, and... Uh, U.S. politics, where so much of politics is local and state-oriented, that's 
that's not unimportant. Why, you know, Manchin could just um, go down with the with the uh, with the party. He could say, "I don't care if they reelect me senator," but he's not been able to make that move in his mind yet. So that's that's why he holds the leverage that he does. And again, I'm speaking with Daniel Rogers, who's a professor emeritus of history at Princeton University and the author of the work Ethic in Industrial America, 1850 to 1920, Atlantic Crossings, Social Politics in a Progressive Age, Age of Fracture, and most recently, As a City on a Hill, the story of America's most famous lay sermon. So we know that this is a huge blow to Biden, and there's no way to get around that. It's just going to be, I think, very, very devastating unless they hit the ground running after the holiday season. And I guess most people tune out during the holiday season. So they've got that going for themselves. But if they don't get something done quickly in January and this thing languishes, this build back better, and the sausage making continues, it's going to be devastating for him. But already Biden is being perceived, and I think the press has played a role in this, as being a failed president. And the pundits keep talking about his sinking poll numbers. But that flies in the face of some of the objective realities of, a, of an economy that even in, with inflation on the rise is still incredibly healthy. So what's happening there? Why, why that disconnect? Well, I think the disconnect, I mean, I think there are three, three parts of it. Um, one is the disconnect between the overall economic figures and people's sense of their own economic well-being. That's always been a, a, a difficult equation. If people are, are noticing higher prices in the grocery stores, uh, then they start to believe that inflation is not only real, but accelerating, et cetera, et cetera. And they put the worst case case on it because that's what they see when they walk down the aisle and they're trying to buy, um, you know, stake for a party that they and then the second thing has to do with that party they can't have that party or they're worried about having that party because of covid and even though biden has no responsibility for uh, the way in which this has been uh, managed um, except in good sense of things um, he's presiding over what is really a exhausting roller coaster of emotions with with covid no no president could could manage uh, to keep high polling numbers, I think, um, under such circumstances. But, you know, the press has an enormous vested interest in talking about a president as if it were a kind of a sports contest, uh, up two points, down five points, winning, failing, going to lose, going to win. Um, that's actually not the way politics works. Biden presides over, as, as we said, a very, very thin Democratic a majority. He's a prisoner of all kinds of, of things. And if you look at his polling compared to other presidents, he's doing not much different than, than the rest of them. They all, except for the two Bushes, they all start to lose um, favorability ratings the moment they step into office. And there's nothing more steep about the, the fall of, of Trump, of Biden's um, popularity ratings than of, than of others. Obama's went down quickly. Reagan's went down quickly. The press has a, would like to tell the bad news because that gets more eyes on their, their print and their media presentations. And they would say, well, he's kind of normal for a president at this moment. So is there a comparison to be made with Jimmy Carter? I mean, inflation and high oil prices, of course, did enormous damage to 
to Jimmy Carter along with the Iran hostage crisis. But the extent to which both Biden and Jimmy Carter were elected as reform presidents, is there is there an historical analogy here that American politics are inhospitable to reformers, particularly one with a, such a thin majority that Biden has to work with? Well, you have to go back before Lyndon Johnson, who, until the debacle of the war in Vietnam, was, was a reform president uh, on the order that, that had not been seen since uh, Franklin Roosevelt and was an extremely popular president and an extremely effective president. But it's true that um, in the post-Johnson era, uh, reform presidents have, um, and from the left have had a, a difficult time. Part of it has to do with the fact that the, the country is middling in its political opinions, divided, confused, fractured uh, in its political opinions. And so riding any particular wave is difficult. And part of it has to do with reformers who come in with big agendas um, are, are likely to find them frustrated. And so um, that sense that the president has not managed expectations uh, haunts them. But, you know, again, if you look at uh, Jimmy Carter's poll numbers, he was doing fine his whole first year. Uh, he, um, that was, the, his problem was not that he was a reformer. His problem was he was overtaken by, by um, external events and didn't appear to be a strong enough manager in the face of those. So you mentioned the, over, the notion of overpromising. Is that something here that could be affecting Biden in the sense that the perception of failure comes about because he hasn't delivered on his promises, even if it's not his fault? And I guess, you know, blaming his own caucus is not particularly helpful, even though he can, to some extent, blame both Manchin and Cinema. Yes. Well, overpromising, I mean, there are two sides of that. Nobody thought Biden was going to promise much of anything. Um, he was a he was from the very beginning, played the moderate role, played the tempered man of experience. He was going to carry on in the Obama fashion. Um, and then suddenly it turned out that he was a reformer. And um, so the expectations were ratcheted up very, very high, very, very quickly. And he did carry through with many, many important reforms. If you listed them all, you'd, uh, you'd way overstay your 15 minutes of each show's time. And already major uh, bills of, of recovery and assistance have gone through Congress. But he did promise this enormously ambitious Build Back Better bill. And now he's taking the, the heat from not being able to deliver on, on that. Um, but it was only a half a year ago that people were saying, what an extraordinary figure he is to have announced something, to have tried to pursue something as ambitious as that. Well, his initial stimulus package is incredibly popular. It's so popular that Republicans and Republican governors are running on it. They're claiming credit for the American Rescue Plan, even though not one Republican voted for it. Well, this goes back to your earlier question, is why when the economy is basically doing okay, despite the, the, uh, the, the price surges that, that are, as I say, so visible in certain areas, gas and meat products in the grocery store, this sort of thing. The stimulus plan um, was a really important reform. It was a powerful use of government um, to, to work at the economy in a way that, that cut directly across the 
Republican orthodoxy, which is that the only thing that government ought to be doing is raise, is lowering taxes on the super rich so that they can quote create jobs. This was this was as deep in the New Deal tradition as anything we've seen since the end of the 30s. Um, but now it's past news, and so everybody wants to focus on the current failure rather than uh, than what was indeed accomplished and quite remarkably accomplished in those early months. So just in the last uh, couple of minutes, then, uh, it does seem that there's some focus now among Senate Democrats on doing something about voting rights. And, of course, Manchin's bill would be the the likely vehicle for that. Uh, but she's still got to get around the filibuster. And there have been some bipartisan meetings, uh, although only a handful of Republicans have joined in them. It's highly unlikely the Republicans would agree to doing anything to end the filibuster or even modify it. But is there a trade-off, do you think, the fact that Biden had these negotiations with Manchin that clearly went nowhere, but in the course of that, do you think they made a deal? Okay, we'll delay a bill back better, but we've got to get voting rights passed. You know, this, this, after having um, given more optimistic a line, perhaps, than than others, I'm a more I'm a pessimist about the voting rights bill. The Republican Party has, in my mind, no interest whatsoever in um, expanding and securing uh, voting rights. That the whole uh, what they learned in the in the Trump years was that uh, they could have enormous power as a minority party if they played the, their cards right, and they've been doing most of this at the state level at a time when the Democrats had their eyes on national politics. Um, they've got um, things in place at, at the state level uh, that are going to be extremely difficult to dislodge. And I can't imagine any um, compromise in the Senate that would overcome the uh, the filibuster on voting rights. Well, I hate to end on a pessimistic note, but um, this is a, a day, uh, obviously, of massive disappointment for President Biden and the White House, and for the Democratic Party itself. It does seem that um, even though they have a majority, the other side seems to be able to uh, sit back and (laughs) Mitch McConnell is absolutely gleeful about what's happening. So far, it's been the Democrats fighting amongst themselves. When's that going to change? I wouldn't. I wouldn't let the Republicans off the hook. They have stacked the decks so, such in a way, and they have worked so extremely hard behind the scenes, and they have worked their uh, systems of communication uh, so skillfully uh, that people like McConnell can uh, pretend that they have nothing to do with the outcome. In fact, they have everything to do with the with the outcome. And if you want to give one final optimistic thought to your listeners, uh, if they would like to see the Biden presidency succeed, if they would like to see any modern presidency, in fact, succeed, um, is that something will pass. won't be what uh, the progressives hope, but something will pass, and that um, uh, Biden will show that, that competence is possible and government action can make a real difference in, in uh, nations and human lives. I haven't given up on that. Um, but we have a ways to go before we get there. Well, Daniel Rogers, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're very welcome, Ian. 
And again, I've been speaking with Daniel Rogers, who's a professor emeritus of history at Princeton University and the author of the work Ethic in Industrial America, 1850-1920, Atlantic Crossings, Social Politics in a Progressive Age, Age of Fracture, and most recently, As a City on a Hill, the Story of America's Most Famous Lay Sermon. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into whether America's two nuclear-armed adversaries will be able to form an enduring alliance against the United States. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Gilbert Rosman, the Emeritus Musgrave Professor of Sociology at Princeton University and the Editor-in-Chief of the ASEAN Forum, a bi-monthly online journal on international relations in the Indo-Pacific region. He taught at Princeton University from 1970 to 2013 and specializes in societies of China, Japan, Korea, and Russia, and is the author of International Relations and Asia's Northern Tier, Sino-Russian Relations, and North Korea and Mongolia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gilbert Rosman. Happy to join you. So do you think that the summit between Xi Jinping and Putin on Wednesday is a big deal? Obviously, relations with China and Russia and the United States are worsening. They are the two major nuclear-armed powers outside of the United States. So, obviously, for that reason alone, you have to take it seriously. But the idea of them forming some kind of alliance, it hasn't happened yet. But there's been a lot of military cooperation and joint maneuvers. So, give us the big picture, if you will, Gilbert. I think that there's a 30-year tendency, direction here of this relationship. It's become stronger and stronger, uh, although there is a kind of uh, bifurcation of the relationship on the level of how they're going to reorganize Eurasian space, with China having its Belt and Road Initiative and trying to create a Sinocentric region and Russia trying to preserve a a separate Eurasian region, they've had ups and downs for the last decade. So that is where there's some troubles. And during the pandemic, the borders have closed and they've had troubles over fishing. Uh, China has been pretty uh, ruthless with regard to uh, travel to to Russia. This has been problematic. But now if you go to the issue of international relations and China's number one priority of regaining Taiwan and Russia's number one priority of of regaining Ukraine, their relationship is getting stronger and stronger. And I think that was the main message from yesterday's summit. So... Without sounding like a cold warrior and an alarmist, uh, which I certainly am not, do you think that a military move on Ukraine by Russia could provide China with cover to move against Taiwan? Uh, 
we have three forces here, North Korea moving in towards a more provocative move, China moving towards Taiwan, Russia moving towards Ukraine. They're, they're, they're all intertwined in some way. But I would think uh, it would it would lead to uh, China taking a a supportive but somewhat distant view to what Russia was doing, blaming it on the United States as they largely blamed Russia's annexation of Crimea uh, and seeking more Russian support for China's activities in the Pacific. I think for many years it was Russia pushing for closer ties with China for many years. And China was a little cautious. And now I think it's China pushing for a stronger alliance type relationship, but particularly seeking from Russia things that Russia hasn't been willing to give so far. And by China giving more support to Russia's move in Ukraine, they are hoping that Russia will get more support for China's diverse assertive moves in the um, maritime Pacific. So, Gilbert Rosman, you mentioned Putin's seizure of Crimea. I understand that the Chinese have ne- have not agreed to it. You say that they blame the U.S. for it. So, well, okay, I'll, I'll explain that further. China has not recognized the Russian uh, annexation of Crimea. But when they write about it and they talk about it, they give mostly approval to what Russia did and blame the United States and see parallels between what the U.S. has done in pressuring Russia and Europe with what the Russia U.S. does in pressuring China and Asia. So just because they haven't recognized Crimea as part of Russia doesn't mean they're not on Russia's side. So why, for example, uh, I mean, uh, the communist government in China keeps talking about, keeps suggesting that the United States is trying to gin up a new Cold War and that they take a kind of the high ground and say, you know, let's not head in that direction. But what they're doing now with Lithuania and closing their embassy in, in Lithuanians diplomats leaving Beijing because Lithuania allowed Taiwan to open an office in Vilnius. That seems like a Cold War kind of act. What's going on with Xi Jinping? Is he does he recognize that this sort of growing blowback around the world as he gets more militant and militaristic? I think he thinks he's winning despite the blowback. And as far as Cold War activities China has taken numerous activities that suggest a Cold War posture, but China's language blames the Cold War mentality on the United States. So you just need to separate out the way they describe the situation and the way they behave in order to uh, serve their own uh, ambitions. Um, I don't think that... uh, Xi Jinping is very worried about the blowback in countries like um, uh, South Korea or Japan. Uh, he, he puts more pressure on those countries and thinks he has 
a leverage, particularly on the Korean Peninsula. So what is the North Korean part of this triumvirate that you mentioned, that Russia's pressure on Ukraine, China's pressure on, on Taiwan is also tied in with a more militant position coming out of North Korea? Well, North Korea has, since the failure of the Hanoi summit, upped its demands on what the United States must do to resume talks or to uh, get into a, uh, a uh, process of transformation. Right now, they are, despite their pandemic lockdown, um, they're not in a mood to, uh, to have talks with the United States unless the U.S. made some enormous concessions. Uh, China is, and Russia have moved in the last few years to back North Korea's position much more strongly. And they think of North Korea as a, a kind of dagger that can be used to affect the U.S. posture, particularly in, in East Asia, uh, so that North Korean pressure can get the U.S. to make more concessions on other issues, such as Taiwan. Uh, the Chinese are quite explicitly linking North, the Korean Peninsula to Taiwan. And if the U.S. doesn't uh, switch its position on Taiwan, China's position on North Korea will, will get even tougher. So the fact that North Korea has a nuclear program... Is that a kind of wild card that serves China's strategic interests? It, while China has said consistently it doesn't favor a nuclear North Korea, and there's some truth to that, uh, it, is, it has done a lot for more than 15 years to take advantage of the North Korean threat, and it does serve China's interests. So let's turn back to what you were talking about earlier, about frictions between Russian Pacific region and a growing and more powerful China, both economically, politically, and militarily. The difference is that you've got an enormous population in China, 1.4 billion, and of course now the Chinese government are relaxing their restrictions on having children, etc., so they want to build up their population. But on the, the Russian problem on the, in the Far East has always been that there's too few Russians and an awful lot of land and a lot of forests. And I'm, my understanding is that the Chinese have sort of been sort of infiltrating into the, Rus into the Russian territory in logging, etc. In other words, China's pretty much used up most of its land, but there's an awful lot of unused land on the Russian side. Is that a simplistic way of describing it? I think so. I think that 15, 20, 30 years ago, there was talk about this demographic threat uh, called a yellow peril in the Russian Far East. Uh, it's more a question of China through sort of fake companies taking over some of the forest resources and through normal deals getting access to much of the natural resources. I don't think Chinese want to move to, North, to Russia. And in fact, uh, right now with the pandemic, the Chinese have disappeared. Um, they're, they're not in, in, in Russia. Uh, uh, 
what is happening instead in this problem is that uh, China and Russia have agreed to uh, sort of combine their interest in developing Asia. Uh, Russia calls it the turn to the east, uh, Putin's initiative from nine years ago. And they want to uh, have a lot of leverage in the east. But some of it, they want to have multipolarity. India, for instance, is their preferred partner after China. And China wants to dominate the East and sort of tolerates some of Russia's interest. But meanwhile, is gaining more and more leverage in Central Asia, has treated India shabbily, um, doesn't really respect some of Russia's uh, uh conceptions of the region and in the background is the notion that it's not uh, that china still regards russia's unequal treaties that took the land from china as a humiliation and uh, russians are nervous that china despite the fact that they supposedly agreed to border demarcation and no longer have a border issue that China still has a historical view of Russia that puts a lot of pressure on Russia to uh, to treat China better. Otherwise, China can retaliate. So it's interesting that what you just mentioned, uh, Gilbert, because last week uh, Putin met with Prime Minister Modi in India. And the Soviet Union, of course, had close ties with India throughout the Cold War. Given that there's a hostility and there were border clashes between China and India fairly recently, what's going on there in terms of, is there any opening there for the U.S. in terms of driving a wedge between China and Russia? I don't think there's, yeah, I don't think there's an opening, but China drove the wedge between China and Russia with the the Himalayan Uh, border clashes in 2020, this angered Russians. It disturbed them about what their their whole Eurasian strategy was being called into question. And they, but they couldn't say anything negative about Russia, about China because of their censorship. They could, and they couldn't say anything. um, They they generally support India in this uh, without being able to talk about it. Uh, But in the meantime, they know that India's trying to drive a wedge between China and Russia. And they, and India doesn't want to just side with the U.S., which it's done considerably in the last few years with the Quad. Uh, but India wants to keep open its options with Russia and get some relatively cheap arms at the same time uh, so that India welcomes Russian initiatives. China doesn't really uh, like them, but uh, if, if, if they serve in some way to uh, keep India and the United States further apart, uh, that's okay with China too. And of course, China supports Pakistan, uh, Russia, and all the Soviet Union traditionally supports India. The Chinese either gave or allowed the Pakistanis to get a nuclear weapon, and that's proliferated through IQ Khan to uh, Iran, etc. So there's a friction there, is there not? There is, um, although when 
Russia and China agreed to expand the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to admit both India and Pakistan. Russia was very pleased that India finally got in and had to yield on Pakistan, uh, but that only weakened the uh, SCO, as it's called. Uh, Russia has been improving relations with Pakistan, too, which makes India a little nervous and maybe one reason why India is trying to keep up uh, its ties to Russia. Well, Pakistan and China are welcome to <laughs> take on Afghanistan, aren't they? The Pakistanis wanted it all along and stabbed the U.S. in the back. And now it's a complete humanitarian disaster, starvation. Nobody wants to help out the Taliban. Just in, in the last minute here, what, what do you see happening there? Well, I, I, I don't think that's a big issue in China-Russia relations right now. I think they basically agreed that the U.S. had to get out and were pleased that the U.S. was driven out in the way it was. They're worried about the Taliban because it can foster uh, uh, Islamic uh, uh, terrorism that would reach into Central Asia and into China. Um, and so they both want to calm that to at least keep the Taliban from moving in that direction uh, without rewarding the Taliban uh, until they know that the Taliban is going to be cooperative with them. Well, Gilbert Rosman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been my pleasure, Ian. Good to talk to you. Likewise. And again, I've been speaking with Gilbert Rosman, who's Emeritus Musgrave Professor of Sociology at Princeton University and the Editor-in-Chief of the ASAN Forum, a bi-monthly online journal on international relations in the Indo-Pacific region. And he taught at Princeton from 1970 to 2013, specializing in societies of China, Japan, Korea, and Russia, and is the author of International Relations and Asia's Northern Tier, Sino-Russian Relations, and North Korea and Mongolia. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.